Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today, I have a very interesting guest, Jay Pittman McGee, who is an ordained Episcopal priest who has his Master of Divinity from the Virginia Theological Seminary. And Pittman is also a Jungian psychoanalyst. Pittman has really spent a lot of his career focused at the intersection of psychology and religion. He's done this work both in his clinical practice. He works a lot of times with people who are coming out of a more fundamentalist religious mindset, and he helps them to interpret their religious imagery and background and traditions through Jung's framework, which emphasizes the importance of spirituality and and myths and symbols, but really in terms of as metaphors rather than literal truths. And Pittman has also spent a lot of time lecturing in, in an academic context as well as adjunct faculty at different universities. Pittman does a really nice job, I think, explaining what the really, it's tough to say proper, but ideal, a more, I think, inspiring vision of what religion should look like. I think the vision he offers is much more appealing to people who are sort of turned off by either the dogmatic approach of religious fundamentalism, but also maybe don't find themselves in the camp of militant atheism as well. This would include a lot of the people who identify as spiritual but not religious. Pittman says he empathizes a lot with that viewpoint, but talks about why he thinks it slightly misses the mark, and we get into that in our conversation. And he's just a really interesting guy who provides a lot of insight, I think, into also American culture, which we touch on in our talk. I hope it's something that's of interest not only to the many American listeners to the show, but also to listeners outside the U.S. who might struggle to make sense of a culture that seems to have a lot of influence on the world stage, but doesn't make a lot of sense from different cultural perspectives. And Pittman talks about how religion has really gotten mixed up with our culture in a lot of ways, which I think is true generally for many cultures, but he, he talks about why he thinks it's been a particularly potent and I think sometimes toxic mix in U.S. culture. And the thread going through, I think, all of Pittman's work, both as a priest and as a psychoanalyst, is to make people whole again. And this is what he talks about is the point of religion, is to reconnect, to make people whole. And that's the point of psychotherapy as well, is to make people whole again. And that's a vision of psychology and religion that is deeply rooted in the work of Carl Jung. So for anyone who's interested in Jung and Joseph Campbell and Jordan Peterson in the more metaphorical approach to interpreting religion, or if you just find religion bizarre and fascinating, even if you don't identify with it, Personally, I hope that, and I think that you'll find this conversation interesting. I think there's something for everyone to get something out of this. So thank you for listening. And with that said, I give you my conversation with Pittman McGee. 
Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Well, Pittman, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you making the time. And I've given folks a little bit of information about your background in the introduction section that before our conversation. But I wanted to start our conversation since we're really going to be talking about psychology of religion. And I know you're very interested in the work of Jung. I'm just curious to know how you first became interested in the ideas of Carl Jung. I was a student at the Virginia Seminary when I was preparing to be ordained as a priest in the Episcopal Church. And on a reading list in the class on pastoral theology, there was a book by Jung, and this would have been in 1969. He died, didn't die till 1961. And this was his first book published called The Undiscovered Self. And I was quite taken by it. As a matter of fact, as when I talk about that, I say it sounded like he had read my mail. And shortly after that, we had moved to Kansas City. I was a young priest serving a parish in Midtown, Kansas City. And my son Pittman was born, and this was 1970. And I read a neighboring parish's bulletin that a Jungian analyst was coming there to speak on masculine psychology. Having great insight into the obvious, I said to myself, I'm a man. I just had a son. I was intrigued by Jung. I'm going to go hear this guy speak. And it was Robert Johnson, who has been one of the most prolific Jungian scholars. Uh, So I, after his lecture, went up to him and said, I want to know what you know. And he said, well, come see me. So he was living in San Diego, and this was before so much about boundaries and ethics. So I would go out and live with him for a week, and we would analyze in the morning. He would go into his hermitage in the afternoon, and then we would walk on the beach and cook and he mentored me. So that's how I got introduced to Young and got hooked. So I served as a parish priest for 25 years. And one of my analysts said that my career had come to a, a Y in the road. And one led to power, becoming a bishop or dean of the National Cathedral. The other road leads to creativity. And you can write and uh, analyze and get in training, become a Jungian analyst. So I took the road less travel. I t- took creativity over power. So I left the cathedral, uh, I was dean of the cathedral in Houston. I left there in 1991 and started my training as a Jungian analyst and got my diploma in 96. So I function now primarily as an analyst with a full practice, but I'm in Austin and we have a seminary here. So I teach at the Episcopal Seminary and I do some priestcraft here and there for family and friends and preaching engagements one place or another. But that's how I got interested in Jung. So I have now spent most of my adult life developing a psycho-spiritual worldview. Can you talk about how Jung's interpretation of Christianity shaped your own understanding or changed your own understanding of your own faith? One of the things that he articulated and brought into collective consciousness was the reclamation of symbol and myth. And we had come out of the 19th century materialism and rationalism to where much of what the philosophy and theology was about was cogito ergo sum, that is, I think, therefore I am, the famous Cartesian split. And so rational, reasonable was the God. And then materialism says, if it's not matter, it doesn't matter. And so Jung reclaimed the idea that, no, there is a symbolic life and a mythological life. And myth had come to mean its opposite. 
Myth means a vehicle or medium for symbolic truth. And it to become, when I grew up, a myth meant something wasn't true. And so he reclaimed the whole idea of symbol and myth and had a huge influence on my ability then to understand the Christian, Judeo-Christian story with a lot more depth and a lot more meaning, thinking of it as a symbolic mythology. The most important thing that Jung said to develop my psycho-spiritual worldview, Jung said, we must learn to discern the difference between physical fact and spiritual truth. So, you know, all the sort of fundamentalist or literalist questions about uh, the resurrection or the virgin birth just went away because we don't apply the question of, is it a physical fact? Because we experience it as a spiritual truth. And so I understand the resurrection because I've experienced it. And so as a part of the Judeo-Christian myth and the Christmas, the Christmas story, the virgin birth is really about recognizing the incarnation that God is present in the world in human beings. And Jung went on to say that there is two dimensions to the psyche. One is ego, which is the center of consciousness, which is kind of that part of ourselves that orients us in time and space and has identity and differentiation and memory, a few functions. But that ego is not the center of the psyche. It's what he called the self with a capital S. He went on to say that the self is the image of God within each of us. And so the incarnation story in the Christian myth is about God being present in human beings. Jung went on to say, would, what sense would it make for God to enter the world in only one human being? That the story of him entering the world in one human being is to be illustrative of the fact that he's in each of us and every one of us. And so, you know, that all really changed my psycho-spiritual worldview. I think the last thing I would comment on is that, you know, he and Freud were in dialogue, and he was a student of Freud's. They really broke over the problem with authority, but they had some doctrinal differences too, because Freud treated religion as a neurosis. And Freud said that the unconscious is a scrap heap of repression. And Jung said, no, religion is a resource for wholeness, and that the unconscious is a wellspring of creativity. So that was another sort of informative difference. And, you know, when I was a young priest, most psychiatrists and psychologists thought religion was a neurosis. That's dramatically changed in the zeitgeist where now spirituality is seen as a very important part of the human dynamic. There are four corners to the human organism. We are bio, psycho, social, spiritual beings. And Jung kept emphasizing over and over again that we were spiritual beings as well as physical beings. So uh, that's kind of a reflection on Jung's influence on my psycho-spiritual worldview. Thank you. That was very well articulated. One point that you brought up makes me have a follow-up question, which is that I guess I would ask you, what do you think was the intention of not obviously just whoever wrote the early gospels or other parts of the Old Testament, but in general, sort of the prevailing beliefs at that at the time, was there a genuine debate, do you think, as this was supposed to be possibly myth or literal? And do the intentions of the people who wrote it matter? Why or why not in terms of how you interpret it? That doesn't matter to me. Now, they were vehicles or conduits. Jung believed there was a collective unconscious and the contents of the collective unconscious are archetypes and that these archetypes come into being through myths. 
but they're not limited to that. They're in fairy tales or in nursery rhymes or in novels or in poems. I mean, the archetypes make themselves known. Archetypes are predisposed patterns of human behavior. So the Christian myth is interesting because it's based on a historical character. So I don't worry about the literal part of the fact, but I'm more interested in the archetypal nature of the symbol. And so what Jesus taught was pretty radical for his time, it's pretty radical for this time too, if we really pay attention to it. But to say that the uh, writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or St. Paul, or Timothy, on and on, to say they were inspired by God, you know, that makes sense. But it also is indicative of maybe that part of them that was the self or the true self was uh, writing and reflecting upon this uh, experience. Probably, Jung said that the, that the Christ is a symbol of the self. And so what they were doing, maybe unbeknownst to them, they were projecting onto Jesus the symbol of the self and the voice of the self and the revelation that comes through that voice. So I'm not concerned about them as much more than conduits for uh, the mythological truth and symbol. I suspected you might say that. Just wanted to ask, you know, I know when we spoke over the summer, I talked about reading Sam Harris and, and you said you were familiar with him and you sort of alluded to the problem right there with kind of that new atheist critique is that it you feel in, in others, like I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jordan Peterson. So he's gotten me very interested in his lectures on the Bible. And I was already into Jung and Joseph Campbell, but he really helped me to appreciate, I think, in particular, the Judeo-Christian tradition in a new light. And this is a debate that I think he and Harris got in, and it reflects a larger debate where a lot of people on other sides of religion are sort of seen past each other. Jordan Peterson's point is that there are two ways of approaching truth, and people like Harris insist on one. He calls it the scientific materialist worldview, a Newtonian one, where the world is nothing but objects, and they're to be analyzed and dissected and deconstructed. Kind of what I was talking about, kind of what I was talking about earlier in terms of rationalism and materialism. That's what I figured you were alluding to, and that's why I wanted to bring this up. But he talked about, you know, there's also a Darwinian worldview, which we need to take one of the most powerful ideas in si and another powerful idea in science theory of evolution very seriously. And when we think about how our brains evolved, you know, this is how Peterson argues that the world, he says a couple of things. One, we see the world as tools, not as objects, because, you know, we look at things that move us forward or obstruct our way. And we also see ourselves, and this is how ancient people saw themselves who wrote these books, as actors in a drama who are trying to mitigate chaos and order. And it seems like some people, whether they're religious fundamentalists or militant atheists, are kind of stuck in that one way of approaching truth, the world of objects. So I was just curious... If you'd heard Peterson's sort of critique of that and to what extent that sort of resonates with your own? Oh, very, very much. You know, I've often said that atheists need fundamentalism in order to have their worldview because the God they don't believe in is the fundamentalist literal uh, literalization of God. There's a wonderful anecdotal story told about the Episcopal Bishop James Pike. He was the college chaplain at Columbia University, and a 
female student came up to him and said, Father Pike, I no longer believe in God. So he said, well, sit down and tell me about this God you don't believe in. She did. And he said, I don't believe in that God either. So, you know, the fundamentalists are trapped into rationalistic materialism because they're always trying to prove things. And these are symbolic stories that uh, you don't need to prove them because they're mythological and archetypal. They work as truth and they are not physical fact, as I quoted Jung previously. So, you know, I think the fundamentalists get trapped into the same worldview that the atheists do. And that is, if you can't prove it, it doesn't exist. And the ego, our egos are time and space organs. And so they're not very comfortable with things that are outside the realm of time and space, like transcendent events or mysteries or synchronicities. And so the ego tends to be in, seduced into that idea that I think, therefore I am. And things that are not rational are not easy to, to integrate. So yeah, I, I agree very much with what his uh, position is. And the thing I like most about the Jungian or the Campbell worldview is that it allows you to stay religious and to stay Christian and to use the stories in my book, The Invisible Church, I talk about that it's a shame that religion has been used to abuse when its origin has to do with being a resource for individuation, wholeness, authenticity, meaning, autonomy. Those are the things that, the, that Jesus taught about. He said to his disciples, you'll do far greater things than those which I have done, meaning he's empowering us to become ourselves. Anyway, that's my response and reflection on that. Thank you for that. Yeah, you, you mentioned how I think this is very true, you know, just the ego, you know, this is the fundamental state of our being. The world is uncertain. We fear things because we're wired to look out for any possible warning signs to perpetuate our own survival. And we know that through neuroscience, things like, you know, the negativity bias of the brain. So people seek this rigidity and this certainty and you know, religion can do that. But I think sometimes what some people focus on too much is it's it's not only religion, you know, it's ideologies generally. And yes, certain religions have features about them like the afterlife, which might make them particularly potent, but ideologies generally can do this. And I think Marxism certainly is a good example of that. Dan Dennett talks a lot about breaking the spell, which that seems to me to be something that's very important for people who are in the grips of an ideology. And I know that you've worked with some people who are trying to come from a very fundamentalist perspective to a more moderate or metaphorical or Jungian understanding. Can you talk about what helps to shift people? What helps to break that spell that they're in? Let me just rewind the tape a minute and say that as a Jungian analyst and a priest, I get a lot of referrals of people who've been wounded by religion, as you're talking about. And in an archetypal sense, we project onto the church the two major parental archetypes, Mother Church, which is the archetype of mother, and then Father, which we have traditionally, for the most of the history of the church, uh, has been run by uh, celibate males. And so uh, the popular thing is to call a priest father. And so the dark side of the mother archetype is infantilization. And it infantilizes people and keeps them dependent. And so the dark mother is the one who consumes or possesses and doesn't want to grow up or leave. I've often said 
you know, if anybody ever got hold of the gospel, first thing you do is leave the church. I don't mean that literally, obviously, but I was talking about the dependence on the church in some kind of superstitious way. The father archetype is to provide order and to empower. And so it sets down the codes. Campbell, in his book on mythology, says that the four functions of myth, one is to establish a code. So Moses comes down from the mountain with the code, the 10 best ways to live. And so the dark side of the father is punitive exclusivity. And that is, if you break the rules, you get punished, shamed, ostracized, or kicked out, excommunicated. And so, so many people have been, because they were not able to adapt to the norm, like the history of human sexuality, that people who were homosexual were ostracized by the church on a very poor exegesis or interpretation of passage in the scripture about homosexuality being an abomination to the Lord. I could do a whole semester course on why that's a bad translation. But uh, I don't believe that that's accurate about God. I think that's about the the uh, patriarchy wanting all seeds from Hebrew men to go into women so they could promote and and propagate the religion, uh, Judaism. Be that as it may, so many people have been wounded by the negative father. And a lot of authoritarians have been attracted to the place of authority in uh, the ordained uh, ministry. And it's ironic because many times they don't feel powerful, but they seek positions of power. You know, there's acquired power and endowed power. And many times people acquire power because they don't feel they've been endowed with power. Now, let me do one quick other thing with you. And you alluded to this, and I want to kind of make this really clear, that there are four A's to the human condition. We're amphibious, ambivalent, ambiguous, and anxious. We're anxious because we are amphibious. We don't know whether we're animals or angels. Dogs evidently have no trouble being dogs. Uh, Angels don't have much trouble being angels, but we have trouble being human beings. Uh, Teilhard de Chardin said, we're not human beings trying to become spiritual. We're spiritual beings trying to become human. And to be human is, you know, in the evolution of our neuropsychology that we have reptilian brain, mammalian brain, and the slowly late emerging prefrontal lobe. So that, you know, are we animals or are we human? And the answer is yes. And so this amphibious nature that we feel is difficult for us and creates for us ambiguity, which creates ambivalence. And these are huge contributors to ego anxiety because we have to decide. And by what criteria do we make decisions? You know, the etymology of decide comes from the Latin cide, C-I-D-E, and the word cide or side means to cut or to kill. So when we decide, we're going to have to do homicide or suicide. We're going to have to decide for ourselves or somebody else. And that makes us really anxious to have to decide. The blessing and curse of the human freedom is we got to decide. Now, part of what religion's about is providing guidelines, maps, precedents for decision-making and values and meaning and so forth. So we do not have to decide in a vacuum, but we ultimately have to decide. That's why I say that, you know, that individuation and truth is really about becoming your own authority. And But most people don't like that and they feel anxious. I've never seen a bumper sticker that said, honk if you love ambiguity. 
So that makes us anxious. We want to know what the truth is and what the right thing to do is. So we abdicate our authority to external authorities. That's why that, you know, anxiety is the thing that drives fundamentalism and literalism. I want to know what the truth is, but I also want to know you for you to tell me how to decide. And a lot of these uh, fundamentalist preachers are ventriloquists. They hold up the Bible and say, the Bible says. And what they're doing is propagating their own uh, authoritarian viewpoint. Uh, As you might intuit from my uh, discussion that fundamentalism, for me, I don't have problems with it doctrinally. If it were going to be your own authority, then you get to choose to view religion however you want. So as a progressive theologian, I want to be given the right to have my own theology, have my own spirituality. And I grant that to the fundamentalists. That's not my argument with them. My argument with fundamentalism is that it's wounding and that it's harmful. In some ways, thank goodness for it, because it makes me have a full practice in my analytical work. But nonetheless, this whole idea of what drives fundamentalism or authoritarianism is anxiety. And when people feel powerless, they're easily exploited. Thank you for that. So I know you've mentioned before about, you say this in the book, about how it's very popular for people in the U.S. And I think this is very true for modern educated people in the Western world or even just beyond that generally, to use this phrase, I'm spiritual but not religious. And you say you can empathize with that, but you think that it's ultimately, I forget your exact word, but you say something along the lines of it's misguided or it's kind of, it misses the point. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is? The root, and what I say is, and I really empathize with people saying that they're spiritual but not religious, what they're really saying is that they are not adhering to the creedal formulation or doctrinal religion, that they're seeking to experience the transcendent in their life. My definition of spirituality is a deep human longing to transfer the transcendent into the imminent. And so we're all spiritual. We want to experience the presence of that creative, dynamic, transforming, numinous, mysterious energy that is available to us. And I list in my book the seven traditional ways and places that we find experiencing the transcendent. Uh, We experience it in nature, creativity, ritual, and love, and suffering. We experience it in our bodies and our dreams. I mean, there are many ways that we experience the transcendent. So people are spiritual, and I get that, and I understand it. But when they say they're not religious, they don't understand that religion, the etymology of religion comes from the Latin legare. And legare means to tie together, like a ligament comes from the word legare. So re-legare means something that was once bound together has been broken and that it needs to be re-legare, needs to be put back together again. So religion is about putting back together estrangement uh, that we have from God or one another or from ourselves. It's about making whole. So religion is about making one become whole. So we're all religious. And so I wouldn't make such a radical distinction between religion and spirituality. But I would make a distinction between spirituality and doctrinal or organized creedal religion. I think the other thing I would say about that is that there is something archetypal in each of us that is moving us toward wholeness. And that religion is a resource for becoming whole. And that religare is going to put us back together again. The thing that Humpty Dumpty couldn't do. It's always interesting to talk about the 
archetypal message that we find not only in myth, but we find it in nursery rhyme, uh, the story of the fall. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, that's inflation, like climbing in the tree and wanting to know what God knows. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. So that's the fall, and nothing on earth can put him back together again. That has to become something through the transcendent, and that's the story of the Judeo-Christian myth. Same thing we sing in the nursery, we sing to the baby, rockabye baby, in the treetop. <laughs> when the bound breaks, the baby will fall. What kind of thing are we singing to the child? And we're really rehearsing through that nursery rhyme the story of the fall. And archetypally, part of the rhythm of the ego is inflation, deflation. And that story is told over and over again. Look at the Tower of Babel. That's an inflation, deflation story. So anyway, my point is that we're all religious by nature. And that was what Jung emphasized over and over and over again. And he felt like psychoanalysis was, in, he felt like psychoanalysis was another, um, another form of spirituality. Interesting. And why did he think that? Because it's trying to make people whole, trying to empower them to individuate. Oh, exactly. Right. This is on a related note. You know, you talk about having access to a, a sacred story. And I'm wondering, how would you define the sacred and why is it so important to cultivate a sense of the sacred in our own lives? Well, that's a good question, because I think the sacred really has to do with that dimension of the human experience and the human being that is more than human. And so I think we are to divinize. I think we're to become divine. I think we're to evolve and access the divine in each of us and to seek to become divine. Now, that can be very inflated and that can, we're not supposed to become God. We're supposed to access the divinity within ourselves. And so, you know, my strong feeling is that uh, for us to evolve into the self, because the self is the image of God in each of us. And so um, my strong sense is that what we want from religion and spirituality is the sacred, and the sacred sometimes is camouflaged in the profane. So I don't make such a big distinction between sacred and profane, because many times the true sacred is camouflaged in the profane. I say in my book that the threefold mantra of the mystic, my definition of a mystic is somebody who expects to experience the sacred or the profound in his own life. But we seek extraordinary in the ordinary, miraculous in the mundane, and the sacred camouflage in the profane. Can you give an example or two of that, of how you've seen the sacred camouflage in the profane, or how famous people or mystics have historically? Okay, there's a big difference between having sex and making love. <laughs> and making love is sacred. You know, we're seeking to experience the divine in the other. And, you know, many times sex is exploitation and, and uh, using another for one's own gratification. I don't make a big judgment about that, but that's a good example of the difference between the sacred and the profane. Great example. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, another thing that you talked about in the book that I just thought totally resonated with my own experience was when you talk about this idea of the American religion. And yeah, yeah you talk about how we conflate religion with facets of our culture. And I think that undoubtedly all cultures do this with their religion. But I'd love to hear you kind of elaborate this idea for our listeners, because a lot of them are 
are in the U.S. and I'm sure even those who aren't from the U.S. could are certainly familiar with American culture, and it might give them a little additional insight. Yeah, well, I'm fond of saying that whether you're Buddhist, Jewish, Baptist, or Episcopalian, we all have been exposed to an American civil religion, which is a combination of Puritanism, Protestant ethics, and patriotism, and a kind of a reward, punishment, Santa Claus religion. And the idea that that we are rewarded by prosperity for following the rules and for worshiping God. So we have to go back, and this will be maybe an oversimplification, but it is simple. John Calvin, which was not a theologian I have much respect for, because he talked about the total depravity of human beings. And he was a contributor to the Protestant ethic and Puritanism, because they asked him, he had this idea of predestination. A predestination doesn't mean that everything's going to happen to us as predetermined. What he meant by predestination was trying to solve the problem. Why do some people accept Christ and some people don't? And he had the theory that there were the elect and that there were certain people elected to become Christian, certain people weren't. So they asked him, well, Dr. Calvin, how do we know who the elect are? And he said, by their fruits, you shall know them. Well, that began the Western Industrial Revolution. Because now they were trying to prove that they were the elect by the fruits that they could produce. And so when I grew up in small town Oklahoma, you go to the grocery store and they had a produce section. And that was made up of fruits. So the whole idea of production, produce, fruits became synonymous. So the Protestant ethic is that if we are part of the elect and chosen by God, we will prosper. So that birthed hard work, obsessionality with work, and then you combine that with Puritanism, which the old definition of Puritanism is the fear that somebody out there somewhere is having a good time. And then you put that with the patriotism, you know, that God's an American and we're the chosen people. That's a toxic combination, and it's affected all of us. I can remember as a little boy listening to the Irving Berlin song, America's the Greatest Land of All. And I wondered, what do other people think about that when they they hear that? So the whole idea of inflation and, and um, in America thinking we are the chosen people, you know, it's, it's wrecked a lot of havoc on our evolution. Just ask the Native Americans about that. So anyway, the American civil religion has this reward punishment idea. And that is, if you follow the rules, you get rewarded. And if you don't, you get punished. And Jesus taught, you know, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. I mean, uh, you don't get rewarded or punished. You get, you find meaning, but you don't necessarily get rewarded by prosperity. And there is a gospel of prosperity. And there's a very popular preacher in Houston, Texas, who is preaching the gospel of prosperity. And basically, if you follow God's rules, he'll reward you. And Norman Vincent Peale was a proponent of that, too. And I, that's not consistent with the Judeo-Christian myth. Yeah. You talk about, and you mentioned it here, you know, how we've gotten production mixed up with religion. And, you know, one of our highest national values is really this hard work. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely getting the sense that you buy into Max Weber's thesis about the Protestant ethic and the spirit of, of capitalism. How did we get so mixed up in this? And what do you see as sort of the, do you, how much hope do you have for being un, able to untangle ourselves from this psychologically and collectively? 
Well, let me let me do just a little previous reflection. I the bad news is that we've recreated this psychopathology of hard work. You know, even in the Hebrew creation myth, God rested one day. <laughs> when my son Jarrett was living in Los Angeles, we were going back to the Los Angeles airport, and there was a billboard there. I think it was for a freight line, but it said, we work 24-7. And I thought, that's psychopathology. I mean, we need to rest. We need to play. We need to refresh. You know, we need to renew. And to work obsessionally is psychopathology. That's the bad news. The good news is, look at the conveniences that have been created through capitalism and the Western Industrial Revolution. I mean, we're talking on, you're in Thailand, and I'm in Austin, Texas, and we're talking over this miraculous machine called a computer. So there have been benefits to it, but also the dark side, nobody really wants to own, which is this idea of how work and production keeps us away from things that are meaningful. I wrote a little book called The Paradox of Love, in which I say you can tell the sophistication of a culture for the number of words that it has for a concept. Uh, The uh, Eskimos have like 58 words for snow. In Sanskrit, there were some 90 words for love. There was a a beautiful word for the love of a person that you have for the person you have not yet met. There's a word for the love of a teacher for a student. We only have one word for love. And that says something about our sophistication about love. And I think the reason for that is it doesn't produce anything. And it's laborious and difficult to love somebody. And it is at the absolute core and center of Christianity that God is love. And Jesus said, you know, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. And so, but we have never, I think because of capitalism, love doesn't produce anything. And so we have a very superficial hallmark card, cardboard view of love, which is really not about the depth and meaning of love as in terms of transformation wholeness and individuation. And so capitalism has its dark side, and that's not a very popular view to take. I guess I'm a theologian of hope. Hope is a theory based on experience. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we will evolve and progress. I think we have. One of the things we were saying earlier about Jung, uh, Jung is contr- attributed to coming up with the term new age because when we move from Pisces to Aquarius is when he believed that we were now moving to the water bearer, which in the water is the symbol of the unconscious, and that we're becoming more conscious. And I hope we are. I have hope about that. The thing that's going on politically in this country right now is not very hopeful, unless you take the view that we do in psychoanalysis that many times there will be regression in the service of progress. That many times that the patient will have to regress a bit before they begin to progress well, maybe our country is in a period of recession right now, a regression, I mean, in the service of progress. So I'm hopeful in that sense. I think this current administration and some of the trauma and tragedy going on in our country is going to get us in a new consciousness. Yeah, I've certainly heard other people talk about that in terms of Trump representing the shadow and shaking things up. I mean, you're not going to have change without going through some difficult times. And, and that seems to make a lot of sense. And to be honest, I mean... I'm trying to empathize with the other viewpoint. And if there's some Trump listeners to the show, you know, I always say welcome. I'm not interested in recapitulating the liberal echo chamber, which I think is a real problem. 
But, you know, I mean, that's the argument a lot of his supporters made. And I think I've talked to some people who were, you know, middle of the road people who aren't even necessarily Republicans or aren't a typical Trump voter. And that's why they voted for him. They were just so sick of the status quo. And while I don't agree with their decision, I can empathize with where they're coming from. Well, a lot of people uh, in this country evidently have felt powerless. And there has been an overwhelming of anxiety in our country. And so this voice of authority and authoritarian voice was something that appealed to a lot of people. Right. Well, I'm glad that you are hopeful. And that's a a perfect note on which to end because I'm conscious of your time. And so I want to say thank you so much, Pittman. We could have talked for hours because you're a fascinating guy, but I know you've got to go. And I want to give you a chance to tell people where they can find you or any of your talks or, or your books. Well, I do have a website. I have six books out, which are all on Amazon. Two most recent ones are books of poetry. I've uh, been writing poetry for a long time and finally got more focused on it. So I have two poetry books. My most popular book is The Invisible Church uh, because it is provocative and tries to do a kind of a Jungian analysis of the church and uh, empowering people to become their own authorities. So if people are interested in, uh, in hearing my voice in writing, uh, The Invisible Church and The Paradox of Love, which is my second little book, would be I would highly recommend. I'm in Austin, Texas, and I live here with my two sons and my four grandchildren, and I'm delighting in the transcendent presence of that we find in the love of our family. So that's who I am and where I am. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Pittman. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad our paths have crossed, Adrian, and I look forward to seeing you again, maybe this summer. Absolutely. I look forward to it as well. Take care. Okay. You be well. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to those of you who are still listening. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Today's conversation was shorter than usual. I try to keep most shows in the hour to hour and a half range. I've been doing more like 90 minutes recently, which I find is good. I find it gives a little extra time to get into some of the more interesting ideas that can come up during a show. But it's also not a hard and fast rule. And sometimes based on how the show feels, I'll I'll cut it off earlier. But Today's guest, honestly, I knew I could have talked to him for two or three hours, no problem, precisely because his passions are very much aligned with mine. In terms of the intersection of psychology and religion, I'd also read his book and we'd spoken before in person. So there was a lot of common ground and there was a lot to discuss, but hopefully I'll be getting him back on the show at some point. But for those of you who are interested in the relationship between psychology and religion, it's definitely a theme I'm going to continue to unpack over the coming months. Certainly towards the top of my interest list, people like Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and Jordan Peterson, and now reading Marcel Iliade at the recommendation of Jordan Peterson, as well as Eric Neumann, another student of Carl Jung's. So all of these will be great thinkers in the intersection of psychology and religion that I can unpack. And most of those figures have passed, aside from Peterson, who would be tough to get on the show given the demands on his schedule. You know, I'll, I'll look for guests who would be able to talk about those with sophistication and eloquence. So if anyone is listening to the show 
who would have any recommendations for people to talk to, whether it's scholars of religion or anyone else in the field of religious studies, practitioners or scholars or psychoanalysts. I would love to hear from you and love to hear your suggestions on that front. My email is hackingtheself at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is at hackingtheself. And there's also a Hacking the Self Facebook page. And so I would love to hear from you, not only in terms of your recommendations, but if you have any feedback. It's always great to hear what people enjoy about the show. It's always great to hear people's constructive criticism as well. I welcome both. So thank you so much for listening. And I hope to hear from some of you and I hope to speak to you again next week. In fact, next week, I will be coming out with another episode on the topic of mythology. So look forward to that and talk to you soon. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hackingtheself. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.